0: Good morning, this is The Burner. I am James Butler and it is Thursday the 26th of March and we are still in lockdown. I believe in a decent, socially just society. And he was talking as though this was a sort of obituary
1: just to let him know my voice will not be stilled. I'll be around, I'll be campaigning, I'll be arguing and I'll be demanding justice for the people of this country and indeed the rest of the world.
0: That was Jeremy Corbyn, of course, in his final speech at the Dispatch Box as leader of the Labour Party yesterday. And for those of us who supported and campaigned for him during those bitter and intense six weeks at the end of last year, doubtless there are all sorts of feelings uh, that are stirred up by it. For me, a mix of disappointment mixed with anxiety at what comes next and mixed too, I think, with memories of that campaign which now seems like it took place almost in a different world. Revulsion, I felt as well at some of the tributes paid to him in the House yesterday. My memories of the many slanders and really risible attacks by many of those who rose uh, to mention him uh, are far too fresh. As well, I think perhaps there is a sense that it's only with Corbyn's departure we'll begin to see what kind of shape the left is in both inside and beyond the Labour Party and indeed what comes next. I've always said I'm more interested in the movement that developed around Corbyn than the man himself, and though it's weakened and though the fractures in its coalition have been more exposed since the December election, I think it's far from vanished as a force in politics. But when the leadership election kicked off after that loss, no one could have foreseen the world in which it would conclude. It seemed all but certain we'd be facing a spell of deeply depoliticised politics, pivoting around Boris having got Brexit done uh, and eventually figuring out the consequences of that. And that, for now at least, is out of the window. Instead, the emergency has highlighted, at least for those paying close attention, many of Johnson's weaknesses, his reluctance to take hard decisions, his need to be liked, his shiftiness. But those have been less perceptible, I think, outside the circle of those of us who are pathologically attentive to politics. If Johnson's Churchill impression has been a bit flat, it has struck most of the comforting notes of the nation's most favoured cliché. And and so far, the question of preparedness, lack of PPE in the NHS, uh, inadequate response to the pandemic in general as it took hold, don't really seem to have made a dent in his approval ratings. Indeed, they've increased. But what blows governments off course? As Harold Macmillan apparently never actually said, but which gets attributed to him all the time, events, dear boy, events. And there's no event quite like this one. It's also an event for which no side of the political spectrum has a pre-prepared narrative, unlike the crash of 0708 or other unpredictable and exogenous events like a terrorist attack. And that's why perhaps uh, the register in which Johnson and other politicians have talked about it sort of flips a bit between them. And it's perhaps why as well uh, to many in the country, it still feels slightly unreal. It's not something that we prepared for in our heads. As I've suggested in other episodes, all of this can bring to the fore the issues uh, that Labour has made central to its campaign over the past few years. Low pay, leading to lack of security, under-resourcing of the health service, as well as the capacity of the state to coordinate and act in ways impossible for other forces. But it is likely to be the most bitter kind of demonstration. And that is the conundrum that will face Corbyn's successor, which, barring an upset of, frankly, a very improbable kind, is going to be Keir Starmer. He will enter office in the context of a national emergency, and a national emergency always pulls the leader of the opposition in contradictory directions. One pull is towards the state to do whatever can be done to stem the crisis immediately. The other, however, is against the government of that state you know, to find the errors and the dangers, the failures and the flaws in the way that they're dealing with it. The problem, of course, is that the latter is too often despi- depicted as disloyal or simply time wasting in a crisis. but it really is vital. Stammer himself faces particular problems. Of course, the party's divided and one part can't stand the other and vice versa. But that's always been true of the Labour Party and it's not likely to change, barring a miracle anytime soon. So his pr- his, some of his problems though, are particular. Everyone, for instance, knows that the Brexit process is going to have to be extended. uh, But Starmer carries the millstone of having having been the most vocally anti-Brexit politician on the Labour front bench. There are other problems that just arise from the occasion. Can he really justify a full reshuffle of the shadow cabinet in such a situation? And many of his backers from the party's right want nothing less than a full purge. But it seems to me that that misjudges the situation. Here, at least, is one thought. So sharp and so detailed and, to use a word beloved of Starmerites, forensic has uh, has been John MacDonald's attention to the economic consequences of the crisis and the measures taken by the government uh, and where they've been lacking, that to me it makes good sense to keep him in post for the duration of this crisis at the very least. I'm not sure John will thank me for that suggestion, but I do think it is the right thing. As for the legacy of Corbyn and Corbynism, that's for a longer show. But, like Joanne Lai was reputed to have said of the French Revolution, perhaps it's too soon to tell. But the structural problems which led to Corbynism haven't gone anywhere, and it's very likely that we'll emerge from the other side of the crisis with all of them sharpened and biting harder. There's something to be wary of here, I think assuming that the crisis is going to do our work for us. In its crudest form, that can look like some kind of immiseration thesis that the worse things get, the riper they'll be for radical change. Other than being crude and distasteful, it's simply untrue. Leon Trotsky thought something kind of similar as Europe barreled towards the Second World War, the death agony of capitalism, he called it in the title of a book. Well, it wasn't quite. There are no laws, no predetermined direction of travel in politics. There are just opportunities and openings capable capable of resolution one way or another, and perhaps, indeed, more easily resolved to the right, given, you know, they're in charge, the British press is pretty deferential, and the powerful can shift like a kaleidoscope in a real crisis. And people really like having their needs met. No one can do our work for us. In his speech closing the debate on the coronavirus bill yesterday, John McDonnell reminded the Commons that 87 people had died that day. Normally, such a loss of life would occasion mourning in the House, true seriousness. And yet seriousness does not seem quite to have taken hold yet. McDonnell compared it to the phony war before real wartime bit and said rightly, I think, that the government needed to break through that sense but the House is adjourning early for Easter and may be away for quite a while. That's right. It's absurd to put parliamentary staff and workers at risk, but it makes me worry about real scrutiny of the government. And it's absurd that no means of digital scrutiny for parliament, no way of digital meeting, seems available. So instead, we're going to have to make do with Boris's daily press conference. So let's listen to this from yesterday. How did we come to be so woefully behind other countries? that have checked, evaluated and deployed tests in much, much bigger numbers already. Well, well thanks. Thanks, Gary. Um, I, I repeat the answer that I gave earlier in the House of Commons. We will do it as soon as possible. We are massively ramping up our, our testing uh, programmes, uh, buying in uh, huge numbers of... Uh, Hear that? Of, of, of that tests. was avoiding so the you, question. Uh, you've had it. it wasn't about really, what we want to uh, but do, but why the government is so behind other countries. They but... They Alas, follow up came then none. Now, I'm not going to pretend that the Commons is a lapidary example of serious scrutiny, but it's slightly better than that. And that's why we need to be thinking now about how to hold the government to account for what they've been doing as the consequences unfold and become clear over the next few weeks. Really, no one will do our work for us. The last thing on this. There have been calls from some on both sides for a government of national unity, though these have, on the Tory side, also been made explicitly with the aim to share out the blame if things get really disastrous. I don't think this is likely to happen, not least because Boris Johnson really does think himself like Churchill, and is well aware that Churchill lost to Attlee after Attlee had been in his wartime government, but also, the guy has a majority of 80, it's not like the need is particularly pressing. It is difficult to gauge what Starmer's response would be. Like many others, I find him hard to read. Uh, his public interventions have been bland, often rather late in the day. He makes me think sometimes of the line attributed to Le Drue Rollin, uh, there go the people, I must follow them, for I am their leader. On the one hand, it would be difficult to refuse such an offer in a time of emergency, and Starmer notices lead too. Uh, on the other, well, it looks very much like it would defeat the point of having an opposition in the first place. To my mind, he should say in such an event, the nation is better served by scrutiny. It is better served by plurality. It is better served by the full and open declaration of when we think the government is charting a course for disaster. Johnson can choose to listen or not, and it makes not a jot of difference whether I'm inside the tent or out. The national government fantasy, of course, is about taking politics out of politics, the smooth administration of the state in crisis mode. Or for some of the more technocratic liberals, that's the ideal at any time at all. But it really is a fantasy. When people say they hate politics or that this is no time for politics, what they usually seem to mean is the dreary play of technical advantage and party point scoring. I agree with that, and I don't just agree with that in the middle of a crisis, but. Under the technical dullness of politics are real clashes of interests and ideas, values as fundamental as in whose interests the world should be run, what the state is for, where and how money is spent, what things, if any, should be beyond the market. I can't think of a time more likely to test those assumptions, those clashes of values, than this one. In that sense, to me, we need more politics, not less on to princes and no not prince charles who's come down with the coronavirus and benefited from speedy access to testing of a kind unavailable to us mere subjects and citizens no pyotr kropotkin who disclaimed his princeton became an anarchist and wrote mutual aid you'll doubtless have seen and i hope for many of you got involved in one of the many mutual aid groups which have sprung up around the country in response to the crisis and which now looks to be overtaken by the government's own scheme for a volunteer army, which saw over 400,000 people sign up in just the one day after it was launched. So, what's going on with mutual aid?
1: One of the really difficult things is seeing all of the food banks that are just absolutely bare, like got nothing in them at all.
0: I spoke to Avia Day, who's been involved in the mutual aid group in Hackney since it started.
1: And yeah, we've had people in Hackney, um, like donate loads of money, try and do a really big shop for them, a few hundred pounds, or donate some of the stuff that they've been able to get from the supermarket during the panic buying and donating toilet rolls, donating tins, whatever they got. So yeah, again, it was just, I think it's just a matter of like, how do people find out how they can help?
0: So where did they come from?
1: So the first one started in Lewisham, Thursday before last, I think. It was like that week where everything seemed to sort of, seemed to be quite big discursive changes in the way people were engaging with, everything to do with coronavirus and the response and that. Um, yeah, and that Thursday evening, Lewisham group started, and then after that, um, I started the Hackney one off the back of that. Um, and yeah, I mean, it just seemed like a really good like way of dealing with people's anxieties about what was happening and and what was going to happen and how people were going to get support and everything like that. There was a lot of that flying around and this seemed like a really good way to like our energy into it. I think, I don't know, I've been trying to reflect on and I haven't really formulated my thoughts around this, um, but it's kind of interesting how this kind of sprung up all over the country in, you know, a matter of a few weeks after an an election that left a lot of the left completely Desperately um, disappointed and demoralised.
0: And how about the politics of the groups? Are they all full of people who've been politically active before.
1: All the groups have really different politics. I would say the first couple that got started up, there's a lot more kind of like anarchisty, non-hierarchically organised-y type people. But there are other groups that like. Definitely got more Trotskyist vibes. I think Battersea had a centralised committee before it had hardly any members. <laughs> and um, and then, yeah, there are some groups that are very much more charity orientated uh, with kind of politics around saviorism and stuff like that, rather than actually mutual aid. And so, like, on the one hand, it's like the term mutual aid you know, and Kropotkin book, like, is now common parlance across the country. On the other hand, people, not everyone involved actually understands what mutual aid means. Um, so, yeah, I think some of the groups, like, <laughs> particularly some of the more suburban groups in the outskirts of London, got a lot more people who are a lot more deferent towards the council and politicians um, but fundamentally like we've got a common one common thing um, is that people want to look out for their neighbors during this crisis and that's something we can build on like we're not all going to have the same politics but we can build on that
0: and just give us a sense of what kind of activities the groups are undertaking
1: early doors um what the groups have been doing starting off is just like trying to um it started off with like a facebook group then doing whatsapp groups um based on your ward so asking people to start a whatsapp group for their ward post it on the facebook group so that people people come into the facebook group can go directly to their ward and within those wards people are generally i mean they're organizing themselves really differently across the board but you know, basic, down to the basics, just getting leaflets, putting either one number on it or different people's number on it and trying to hit as many of the doors around their um, ward as they can. Just offering support around shopping, prescriptions, dog walking, um, even just having a chat if people feeling lonely and isolation. One of the big conflicts early on was around Safeguarding and GDPR, and there are some within groups who were just like, you, you know, wanted everyone who ever knocks on anyone's door to have a C or B check, which is fucking ridiculous. Um, you know, it stigmatizes people with convictions, and you know, it'll be, we'll be waiting a long fucking time for everyone to get a fucking D, DBS check or whatever. I mean, I've had to wait weeks for one before, some people have had to wait months. Um, people are going to be fucking skeletons in their houses, fucking neglected but by, the, by the time you've got permission to knock on someone's door. And obviously they don't fucking prove anything anyway. Um, so that was like frustrating conversations that are happening in lots of different boroughs between people who feel like, you know, look, we're just neighbours, like knocking on people's doors, we're not an organisation, we're not, you know, like one of the things with gdpr like people saying oh yeah you might get people scamming or like if you're holding all these people's data and blah 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 and i think the easiest way is just to say we're not going to hold anyone's data um if you get a request in just you know you don't need to hold that any of that information or put that information in the spreadsheet or anything like that in terms of scammers yeah like obviously i mean i think it's difficult like yeah some people are going to want to do that I think the more we're in contact with each other in the community, the less likely that actually is. It's funny sort of thing that people seem to think that doing something like this makes it more likely that someone will get scammed. But I actually think, you know, the more, you know, this gives a level of community accountability. um, And there are many, many, many more um, vulnerable people who are isolated and alone and neglected than there are scammed or exploited necessarily. And I think part of the reason for that is because of these fucking hoops that people feel like they have to jump through just to knock on their neighbor's door or put a leaflet through their door.
0: Now, obviously, you've been involved in these groups and they've had a big positive media response, but it seems to sit at odd with all of the press stories about stockpiling. What do you make of that?
1: I mean, I understand why people are stockpiling, because we've had many, many, many years of austerity and people being told that the only people that are going to look after your family is your family. If you're lucky enough to have one that will look after you. Um, No one else is coming to help you. No one else is coming to support you. So people feel responsible. They feel like they have to, they have to go and panic by in order to make sure that their kids are okay, that their relatives are okay and all of that. Um, Yeah. But at the same time, you know, I think, this being set up it has, has countered that narrative a lot, because I do think actually people have had that messaging for such a long time that, you know, it just look after you and your own, but given the opportunity and a structure within which to do it, people want to help like people outside of their families. People want to help local residents. People really want to do that. They often just don't know how to make that first step. And I think this got th- over 3000 groups nationally you know, hundreds of thousands of people involved. I think, um, you know, given the opportunity, people do want to help.
0: And how about, and I suppose this is the, the big question facing you at the moment: the the volunteer army, the four hundred thousand people who who appear to have signed up for the government-led uh, volunteering initiative. What impact will that make?
1: I'm, st- I'm still trying to figure out what I think about the whole volunteer army thing. I mean. I- You know, I think it's a bloody cheek in some ways that they've, like, jumped on the bandwagon of something that we've done when they should have been implementing this long ago. Like, they've got the money, the resources, like, there should be people whose job it is to fucking do this. And we're all doing this at the same time as transitioning to working from home and transitioning from, you know, um, having, you know, kids in school or or people that we care for um, in, you know, like having to be at home and we're doing several jobs and doing this mutual aid and um boris johnson who should be fucking funding some kind of proper response hasn't done that at all and is now jumped on the bandwagon of this when we're just doing this on the side of all the other like things that we've got to be thinking about right now it's absolute chaos so it's a bit of a cheek if he's gonna um enlist people to do this. I think you should be paying people like there's How many people have lost their jobs in the last few days? Every every day I've, I've got more and more friends who can't pay their rent. Like, can't, you know, you should be paying people you should be like um, not fucking using people as volunteers at the point when they're about to get, you know, potentially face eviction, but like, lose their jobs, not be able to get universal credit for six weeks. Fucking pay people, employ people to be crisis response.
0: All right, so I think that story will be an interesting one to watch develop over the next few days, but I think that point is an essential one. I don't think there's anything wrong with volunteer spirit and it's an important thing. But if you've got loads of people being thrown off from their jobs and you've got a need for crisis response workers, well, the solution seems pretty clear to me. All over the papers this morning, it looks like further measures for the self-employed will come from the Chancellor at today's 5pm press conference. But that question of means testing and thresholds to access, those are pretty big ones. Uh, No one quite knows what the package will look like yet, but there's a lot of speculation. Over in New York, the infection developments are starting to look pretty terrifying. and We'll try to bring you an update on the situation in the United States very soon. There's trouble brewing in the Eurozone. Nine governments, including Italy and Spain, are pushing for the issue of coronavirus bonds in order to fight the fund against the pandemic but Germany and the Netherlands look reluctant at least at the moment so Europe's fractures are still very very much in place. As ever, please get in touch with thoughts, comments, questions, ideas at james at and maybe how you're keeping it together during the lockdown. As ever, stay home, wash your hands, don't be a prick. Get in touch with your local mutual aid group. That's it uh, for this morning. This is The Burner. I am James Butler and I will see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.